Why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. I'll read from that in just a moment. It's the story of Melchizedek and Abram. And I guess I'll begin by saying that Melchizedek was a real person. He was a religious man who was successful as a priest and a king. And he was a great man. This is the guy, if you recall the story, we'll get there in a second, that Abraham met when he came back from war and, uh, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And Abram paid him a tithe. The ascended Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, or Melchizedek is probably more comparable to Jesus, the ascended Jesus. But Jesus is the king of heaven, and he's also the high priest of heaven. That's primarily the comparison, and Jesus is a most merciful priest. And I think it's something you need to hear. It's important for you to experience Jesus as your priest first, before anything else. For as your priest, he ministers on your behalf. He presents himself as the sacrifice for your forgiveness. Then he intercedes for you, even now. Without Jesus as your priest, you remain unforgiven and still against God. In such a condition, no person would really want Jesus to be king if they have not first experienced him as priest. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's a great delight for Christians to know Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. We're glad. We're glad for his majesty, that he can triumph over every foe. However, when we blow a trumpet to announce his royalty, right, figuratively speaking, it should be a sober blast, sober for his rulership is a fearful thing to, to his enemies. And when you and I reflect upon the grace and mercy he extended to us and continues to extend to us, then though we will continue to appreciate his kingship, it will not likely be with an air of haughtiness. No, we will appreciate his kingship, but not with an air of haughtiness. Christian men should not blast their trumpets in a bombastic manner, so proud to be on his side. He is king, every knee must bow, kiss the sun lest you perish, chest bump, high five. If we remember that grace is the only reason we are on his side, then we will learn to refrain from blowhard Christianity. It's a contradiction. 
Rather, when we blow the trumpet, its sound should be loud and firm, but without pride in our chest and ridicule for the rest of mankind, because we were the rest of mankind, apart from his priestly work. Melchizedek was a priest king in the Old Testament who God used to represent the ascended Jesus. He is a mysterious man because of what we don't know about him. The writer of Hebrews and King David, too, make a pretty big deal of Melchizedek. I'll first read the only two passages that mention him in the Older Testament, Genesis 14, 18 through 20, and then Psalm 110. And then we'll consider some of the things the writer of Hebrews mentions as he compares the ascended Jesus to this man. So, beginning in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. This Genesis account's the only time we run into Melchizedek. You know everything that Genesis tells us about him here in these three verses. He existed in the days of Abram. So this is ancient history. Somewhere in the years between 2000 to 1800 B.C., before Christ. So their meeting takes place then prior to Jacob with his 12 sons. Prior to Moses, prior to the tabernacle and the priesthood of the Levites prior to priestly sacrifices in the house of God, prior to King Saul, prior to King David, you get the idea. Melchizedek was before Israel. He was an ancient man who honored God most high on two most important fronts. And God most high acknowledged him. Melchizedek was his priest king. Abraham knew it, and he too honored God's man. He paid him the tithe. Later in history, David mentions his name in one of the Messianic songs. Okay, it's Psalm 110. I'll read that now, if you turn there. Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So he's writing this about a future king that David calls his Lord. Verse 4 says that this king is going to be a priest too. And David, he was a king who knew how to fight. He knew how to rule. He was a warrior king. For that reason, God would not allow him to build the temple of, of the Lord. The success of Messiah's kingship, though, is not lost on David. He sees it. He hails it. This will be a successful king. David appreciates the glory and the victory that will be Jesus's. That he shall rule over all nations. Yet it might be a surprise to him that God is placing a priest on this throne. A priest who will reign, but not according to the priesthood of Aaron. He will be a priest of Melchizedek's order, one not even associated with the Levitical line. Remember, okay, Melchizedek preceded Aaron. He was before Levi. He served when humanity was still the nations. He ministered to God to God while men were dispersed and there was not yet a chosen people. So last week when I uh, said that when Jesus was clothed in a long robe with the golden sash in that first chapter of Revelation, that these clothes had significance, and I asked, was Jesus wearing the attire of a king or were they clothes of a priest? And I said, there's a good chance that they represented both. For Jesus is a high priest, but according to the order of the priest king, Melchizedek. And this takes us to the only other book of the Bible that mentions this enigmatic Old Testament figure, Hebrews. Turn there now, Hebrews 7. In, in this book, its writer interprets Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 for us as it applies to Jesus. And I want to read, but only from a section in Hebrews 7. So follow along because I will make intermittent comments as we read it. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Okay, he's recounting this Genesis passage. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. Okay, so consider this. Abraham, he left the Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a place that God was to show him and give to his descendants. And thus far, Abram had neither. In fact, his name is still Abram rather than Abraham. So God had not yet changed his name to reflect his promise of being a a father of multitudes. But Abram is faithfully following God. And then he comes across this different person who is also following God, but in an even greater way. Abraham can see it. He can feel it. Melchizedek confers a priestly blessing even upon Abram, and Abram responds, gives gives him a tenth. I want to suggest that a mature person, a godly person, will always hold out hope for younger Christians. And a mature person like Melchizedek holding out hope for Abram, he will always do it with mercy. Mercy for a mature Christian will always triumph over judgment. The writer continues still in verse 2 and 3. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Names. They seem to carry more importance in biblical history and among the biblical writers than today, it seems. They, they probably should today. They maybe do today, although we name our children some crazy things. And we don't give it much credence. In Scripture, we've often been told the meaning of a person's name in order in order to show the relevance of the person, what they've done or the things that happened to them. Sometimes God even changes their name because he intends to to fulfill in them a greater purpose, like he did or will do with Abraham, becoming Abraham, okay? And later with Jacob when he calls him Israel. Uh, which means perseverer with God. So here in Hebrews, the meaning of the name Melchizedek is explained. It means he is king of righteousness. King of righteousness. But then secondly, the name, the meaning of the name Salem is explained. It means peace. And since Melchizedek is the king of Salem, most probably Jerusalem, as commentators make this point, it means that he is a righteous king who rules over the land that experiences peace. 
So if these names matter, and apparently they do according to the writer of Hebrews here, a king who rules in righteousness produces a kingdom of peace. This describes the man who met Abraham and blessed him. Melchizedek became what his name meant. It's the essence of the person of Melchizedek, the man. He was a righteous king of peace. He was that by God's design. He grew up to be a priest king and was ministering to another on that day in the valley of the king. You know he grew up as a boy. He aged, became this great person, greater than Abram. That's how it works. We mature. We start as something that God has made with intentions for us, and we grow older, and we experience, and we develop, and we mature. Jesus, too, we're told, grew into his position. In Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus grew into his position, just as Melchizedek and Abram and you. It's a benefit for you to know this. It is good to mature and become an adult. But maturity is more than aging. It is growing up as a person. As you. It is to fill out into your designed self, the essential self for which God made you, the self God made you to be. It's the goal toward which your childhood and adolescent self strived, or maybe is still striving. It's not bad to age and get older, but good. God wants it for you. Melchizedek, he had arrived, you could say. But here's the thing about people like Melchizedek. Maybe he arrived, but he didn't feel that way about himself. He was still on his way to becoming all that God intends for him to be. 
Abraham was growing up too. He had more to learn, and, and we still get to read a lot more about him. Whereas it's pointed out about Melchizedek that nothing, is, nothing more is known about the man. There is no mention of his father or mother or genealogical descent. All of those things would have been important in the Jewish priesthood. For them, you were included or excluded based upon lineage, and yet none is given. His birth is not marked, nor his death. That writer I mentioned last time, William Milligan, he wrote this short description of Melchizedek. Like a sudden flash of light, he comes out of the unseen, fills the eye for an instant, and passes into the unseen again. And how appropriately then does it say in verse 3 that he resembles the Son of God? Moses, David, the writer of Hebrews, and all the rest of history will remember Melchizedek as the special righteous priest-king of Salem, who was greater than Father Abraham, and yet his appearance that day is meant to echo, just echo in history, the profound position of our ascended priest-king Jesus. Which brings us to verses 4 and 5. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. Now, this is a side note to me. But some would like to erase the obligatory 10% tithe from church giving. They say, we are not under the law, but under grace. And they cite the Levitical priesthood as old covenant practice that has disappeared and attached to it was the tithe. Others don't go down that path. They prefer a nobler idea and say something like, it's not only, no, 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 10%, it's not only 10%. We can give in this Christian era much more even. We should, much more even. And I'm pretty certain that would be a good thing. Though I'm not so certain they follow through with that. Needless to say, we find in Genesis 14 here a pre-law, pre-Levite, pre-tabernacle tither, Abram. It wasn't the commandment of the law mentioned in verse 5 that established the tithe. Rather, it was demonstrated by the heart and hands of faithful Abraham as he subjected himself to one closer to God than he was. And I say that carefully, closer to God than he was. But I tend to think that what makes a person greater 
which is said of Melchizedek in verse 4, is that the person is nearer to God. That's what makes them greater. They're nearer to God. And this seems to be the direction we're taking in the next verses, 6 and 7. It says, but this man who does not have his descent from them, uh, in other words, from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's pretty emphatic, verse 7. There's no argument to be made. Period. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Wait. That doesn't sound democratic. Are you saying that one is greater than the other? Yes. Positionally, at least. Relationally closer to God, for sure. Melchizedek was superior to Abram. How could that be? I think I know what the key is. You probably know it too. The key is not to vie for position. Like the mother of James and John, you remember that? She wanted her sons, one to sit on his left side, one to sit on his right side. She's vying for position. Instead, what? It's to be humble like a child, Jesus said. Happily trusting and attending to this wonderful person named Jesus. You want to be great, I suggest you pursue him. I think we've all realized when we've been around sincere and godly people, they don't brag about their acts of faith. They don't puff themselves up by sounding off about God and the Bible. They're, they're not looking to be noticed. They're trying to walk with God in peace. And if someone... And if somehow God puts them in the spotlight or they get thrown into the fray, it's never about them. They don't want that. It's all about God. They'll go into the fray. They won't refuse him to put them into the spotlight, but it's all about God and they are very careful to guard their hearts and their lips. Finally, the comparison of Melchizedek to Jesus takes on an additional element in verses 8 through 10. It says, in one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The comparison between the priest of the Most High God and the priest of Levi is God's intentional contrast of orders. The Levites are mortal men. They all die. 
whereas death is intentionally not recorded for Melchizedek. This does not mean he didn't die. It's just that God chose to cap off, to cap off with silence his life and ministry. The flash of this particular priest-king, servant of God, is kept to three sentences. And the reason for it is that men would begin to understand that Jesus, God's heavenly high priest, comes from an order that is not carnal, it is not fallen, and it is not mortal. Milligan again. Melchizedek was free from those relations of family and tribal descent, of beginning and ending, of sense and time, which were inseparably connected with individuals belonging to this world. The reasoning upon this point is indeed drawn from silence, not the positive assertions of Scripture. And so as King David announced of God's Son in Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's Messiah, King Jesus, is also a priest. But he is not a Levite. He is the, king, he is the kind of priest that ministers to all men everywhere like the one who ministered to Abram in the valley of the king. Jesus is an all-nations man, an all-nations man. Jesus told us his mission was greater than the tribes of Israel. He told his disciples, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock One shepherd. Jesus reaffirmed this greater mission to the Apostle Paul, just as a case in point. It was why Paul was was facing this opposition when he was in the Gentile city of Corinth. Acts 18 records it. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I'll close with this quick comparison between Melchizedek's ministry and Jesus' ministry again. Profoundly written by William Milligan, this book, uh, The Ascension of Christ, that I've mentioned last week, is well worth having on your uh, library shelf. It takes concentration when you read, but it's a great um, blessing. This is what he says. In both cases, okay, this is a comparison between Melchizedek and the ascended Jesus, their ministry. In both, in both cases, there was a divine order. Older, larger, wider, and more enduring than that of Moses. One, therefore, in which the ultimate purpose of God had been more directly manifested. The economy brought in by Moses was a limitation of that plan, rendered necessary by circumstance and temporary in duration. 
for the real plan of God, we must look to his dealings with men before the days of Moses. And that's where we find Melchizedek. And it's the beauty of the connection made also by the writer of Hebrews and many other portions of Hebrews that I did not touch upon. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would uh, use this preparation not as a dry lecture, but as a sermon with penetrating passages that do make a difference of how we understand you and your purpose as our ascended king and priest. Amen.